Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. You'll hear news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. And we have a quick bonus episode. We will have a full, full on episode for you, but uh, I know some people are getting tired of Christmas programming the mix. Um, it is a new year. And we've broken 400 episodes. That's a pretty awesome landmark. And we have a lot of great stuff lined for you here in 2015. Um, That'll commence this weekend. We actually will be featuring some more work of the producer of what we're going to hear today, Gareth Stack. Uh, He has this new comedy piece out called Choices, which is pretty surreally awesome and actually reminiscent of some of the early work of Roger Gregg when when Roger was doing more sort of experimental comedy as opposed to uh, the sort of straight-ahead drama, which he he did in his later years at the RTE. Um, But the focus of this show is, in fact, Roger Gregg. Um, Gareth did a nice uh, documentary for a uh, Mad Scientist of Music podcast that he does. So we're going to cut right into that. It runs about 32 minutes. Here's a profile on, uh, you know, Grandmaster Roger Gregg, who I consider my main mentor in the realm of audio drama, uh, started getting in touch with me and giving me advice and wisdom and uh, long Irish rants early in my formative years as an audio dramatist. So um, I have a special space in my heart for Roger. And uh, Gareth is another acolyte of Mr. Gregg and um, has this little tribute for him. Hope you enjoy. So much of reality is humankind bent on on creating boundaries, creating pigeonholes, creating predictability. That's, you know, what we want. We want to get on a road. We want to know where the road goes to, and we want to go there. That's our goal. I'm more into just kind of, is this a road? Am I walking on it? Where was I? Let's sit down here for a while. Let's just go for a walk. Where are we going? I don't know. I thought you know where we were going. And very often during those kind of aimless endeavors, that's when you really find and make the richest discoveries. Like children, aimless play, play, playfulness. The spirit of play has characterised much of Roger Gregg's work over the past two decades as a playwright, as a sound designer, a musician, a performer, and above all, as the creator of a series of extravagant and ridiculous, mythic and hilarious radio plays. Welcome to another bonus episode of Mad Scientists of Music, a series about Irish experimental musicians at home and abroad. A lot has happened since our last bonus episode. A segment taken from the documentary won the inaugural Your Story, Your Sound Prize at the Sounds Alive Festival in Dublin. The piece was selected by Roman Mars. 
the ferociously talented radio producer behind Radiotopia and the 99% Invisible podcast. An outtake from the show was also shortlisted for a prize at the Hearsay International Audio Festival in Kilfinnan, County Limerick. And you can hear those two pieces, as well as all of our bonus episodes and the original series, in the Mad Scientists of Music podcast feed, which is available on iTunes, Podcast Lounge, and any podcast app you might care to mention. So, to today's bonus episode... As I mentioned at the head of the show, Roger Gregg is an inspiring and well-loved figure in the world of radio theatre. I've known Roger for a number of years, and when I started making a programme about experimental music, I realised that his work fit the bill perfectly. What distinguishes his work with Crazy Dog and the Be Cabaret from most radio drama, my own included, is that it's rooted in a real appreciation for the power of sound, the power to evoke a mood or to build a world solely through the ears. The wheel of your fate has been set in motion by my own idiot brother. Hello, Eamon. Hello, Thomas. How's yourself? Angry. Very angry! And you? I can't complain. You're looking very pale. I can see right through you. Yes, it's a ghost thing. I'm Roger Gregg. I'm Roger Gregg. I work as a playwright, a sound composer. I write music, songs, and I've done a lot of radio dramas. I've done a lot of voiceovers for things, and I've written, directed, and produced shows. written like over 40 plays. I've had them done in four different countries, Ireland, the United States, Germany, and Australia. I teach, play a bunch of different musical instruments. I do music for shows that are not even my own show. Sometimes I do music for my own show. Fingers in many different pies. And I'm left-handed. In person, Roger Gregg is a dramatic individual, veering into voices, comedic skits, self-deprecating humour and musical improvisations. But I finally managed to calm him down enough to get him talking about his career, how he got his start in radio and how he fell in love with sound. When I was in high school, I had this fantasy dream of someday making really, really weird and wild radio comedy. But by now, we were already into the 1970s, and radio was turning into kind of FM radio, and the Wild West days of it were ending, and it was becoming formatted. And by 1975 or something, the Firestein Theater's record contract ended, and it wasn't renewed. Four guys and I went on to pursue different careers in Hollywood. And also having parents that wanted some kind of real job and the fact that I, I did a radio course and discovered that you didn't have much freedom to do comedy that wasn't going to happen on radio I just gave up on it as a kind of unrealistic dream and I, I went to university to study sociology with the thought that I would be a sociologist and make a contribution to society by examining injustice and social inequality and stuff and I studied that for four years and then I went on to start working on an MA for three years in kind of radical social theory but all through that time I was playing guitar and tinkering with bands and stuff and doing little comedy sketches on cassettes. Moving to Ireland, after a couple of years, I had a chance to work on a community FM station, and they gave me a show on a Thursday night. So besides being in a band, which I was also in, I had my own radio show, and I began making little comedy sketches and writing them, doing them on the air. By a strange fluke, one of the bands that I was in broke up and I had a wealth of material that I was writing and that mutated into a musical play and I put on the musical play in the Granary in Cork in 1983 
and then again in 1983 later in the year because the first production was, was a success and then the Cork Theatre Company helped me put it on the second time so I had a little bit more clout the second time to put it on because the first time around was a student production in UCC. That led to an actual real job offer on a pirate radio station in Cork so I went to work for them and that station folded after I was there for like three months and then just as it folded I got offered a job in a different pirate radio station and I was also made head of production there which gave me control of the reel-to-reel in the recording studio because this is days before digital. So I went to work for this radio station and I worked there for a year and a half And but I was also still making songs and stuff and I started writing a second musical which I thought somehow on the side I would stage somehow, some way. So I was also doing a lot of comedy sketches and stuff. And the, the great thing about being head of production is after I was like a DJ, so that was on the air for like three or four hours a day, and then the rest of the time was making ads. And then the promos, I was given free reign to write like comedy sketches. So they'd be like this bizarre kind of promos that were off the wall that I was able to put on the air for to promote whatever, this event or that event. I was writing the second play, and meanwhile, people that had helped me put on my play had gone on to be among the founding members of Graffiti Theatre Company in Cork, and they offered me a writer-in-residency because they knew I was writing a second play. took the job with Graffiti Theatre Company and left the radio station, but it was all on good, uh, amicable terms. So I went to work for Graffiti Theatre Company as a writer and then as an actor with them, and I ended up working for them pretty much full-time for nine months of the year for four and a half years in Cork. But... I was also the sound designer de facto for the company because the radio station would still pay me the odd time to come in on like on a Thursday night and make some ads for them, which gave me access to the production studio. So when Graffiti would put on a play, I had access to the radio station's production studio and the reel-to-reels and all their sound effects and stuff to do the sound design for the Graffiti shows. And then also Graffiti, because it toured around the schools, was like nine months of work a year, so that left the summer months off. So for those years that I worked for graffiti the summer months I went back to work for the radio station I was able to write a few things on the side and put them on in the Triscoll I got involved in the sound art thing there the Soundworks thing started by Danny McCarthy these were called Soundworks and I wrote and put together a few sound art things and and stage experimental things and then one time I did a big production of poetry of Jerry Murphy set to music and performance that I did the music and wrote a stage adaptation for it and we did it for a few nights in the Triscoll Art Center. Hello, well done, dear, dear, dear. Hello, well done, hello, hello, dear, dear, dear. Hello, well done, my goodness, you're tall, dear, dear, dear. Hello, well done, hello, hello, playing a blinder. Hello, well done, well done, well done, dear, dear. Well done, well done, hello, a goodness at all. Hello, well done, well done, dear. Up yours, Gayborn. <laughs> Look on the bright side. Well done, hello, hello, well done. Well done, dear. Look on the bright side. You can always blow your brains out during the next whiter-than-white detergent commercial. You can turn it down or even turn it off and storm into the hallway and stamp on the landmine you're saving for the TV license inspector. And the good news is there's one for everybody in the audience. Well done. Hello. Hello. Well done. Look, Look on, on the, the right side. side. Well done. Hello. Look. Hello. Look on the right side. 
And then in 89, I moved up to Dublin and I got the writer in residency with team. And then they commissioned me to write a play to introduce small children to the basic rudiments of making music. So that became a play called Ambrose and the Gumblewumps. And I wrote that and I wrote the music for that. And I went back to work for graffiti for a time. And then, and then I've been freelance ever since. And then soon after coming up to Dublin, the voiceover thing started happening for me. And it became my main breadwinner. It take nine months to write a play and get commissioned for it. And you could make more money going in doing three Coca-Cola ads in 40 minutes than you could writing a play that would take you a year. So this was when the Celtic Tiger was roaring. So I had many years where I was getting a lot of work. Even after a couple of years of voiceovers, I was making enough money and the digital revolution was really happening big time then, which meant for the first time, regular private individuals could have within their grasp the technology to produce what was always called broadcast quality work. And I went and I made this. See here, see that microphone? That's called Time Out for Bill Lizard. It's a one-man radio play. And I do all the sound effects, make all the music, and do all the voices. Mr. Lizard, I know you have the blackbird. Don't let him hurt himself on the little mirror. Sometimes he attacks his own reflection. Are you crazy? <laughs> sure you are, or you wouldn't be hearing my story. The man checking his phone messages was me, Bill Lizard, small-time private eye. Hear him? Going around and round in circles. Throwing away his time, like spent ticket stubs for that great dream train to nowhere. I didn't know it yet, but starting now, I was going to find all the time in the world. I managed to convince an adventurous RTE producer called Tim Lahan, who had a show that uh, I used to call a Tim Does Whatever He Damn Well Pleases show, because that's what he could do in his show. I sent him a copy of this time out for Bill Lizard and he said can I play it on my show and that's what the Irish Times said. At this point Roger held up the CD pridefully indicating the quote from the Irish Times wonderfully funny Greg has his medium mastered. Quite good isn't it? It's very yeah. So I got a great review in the Irish Times which in this sad little country means a lot apparently. That meant that doors opened and people said come and talk to us about doing some more stuff so that led to the establishment of Crazy Dog Audio Theatre and for about 12 years I was commissioned quite a lot by RTE to write and, and I would do everything, you know, write it produce it, direct it. I might sometimes use the RTE facilities and go in and record my voices there to take advantage of all their soundproofing and everything and then bring back all the recordings here to my own studio and then do all the post-production here and craft whole musical soundscapes and stuff. Too lovely for words. Strange to say, I was elbow deep in the dictionary when you called. Looking up the precise meaning of exquisite. Your exquisite face, etc., etc. Stunned into heart-troubled silence by your exquisite whatever. And then, of course, your brush-fire hair. 
your eyes Of needles and candles Your ears Of tremors and rumors Your nose Of lemon and cardamom Your mouth Of honey and infamy Your tongue Of nightmares and raving Your voice A sudden tumultuous publisher of Jerry Murphy, Daedalus Press, said, oh, this is a great idea. Why don't you do that kind of thing with some of the other poets that we publish? You have free reign. You can look at all the poets that Daedalus Press publish, and you have permission to put them on the stage, set them to music and stuff. So that led to the first experiments with Be Loud Glade, where we took a selection of poems from a selection of different poets and set them to music and soundscapes that enhanced the poem, and then also had the poem performed by an actor. Not by the poets themselves, because unlike Allen Ginsberg and some of the other beats who had a kind of theatrical sensibility, a majority of poets are the last people that should be allowed to get up in front of people and do anything at all, because they're just not performers. Maybe they don't want to be a performer. Getting an actor to do what they can do and treating the text like a dramatic piece and doing it in character, it kind of opens up a way of interpreting the text, which let's face it, everyone does it. Even the poet, once it's written, the death of the writer, once you create the work, it's gone. It's out of the writer's hands. Even they don't even own it anymore. It becomes a thing that is interpreted by everybody. validly interpreting the poem and then setting it to music and then you can bring it out of the poetry reading a stuffy academic poetry reading setting and you can put it in a cafe you can put it in a bar you can put it in a theater you can bring it to young people that would normally run in terror from poetry and present it to them and captivate them and entertain it and then even further if you combine it with elements of cabaret which involve you know a lot more physicality and moving around and the fact that the script is memorized so you're not standing behind a podium can even include elements of dance it can really assume a power it's not the only interpretation but it is one interpretation and it's a valid one it can reach out to people and you know i think poets really deep down they might resent it or be a bit jealous perhaps some of them because it's not what they intended and it's out of their hands but what harm is that it gets getting their name out of there where we always plug their work so that's the be loud glade Eternal night 
so cold and numb. Find in my phantom lies all that you fantasize. I'm an autodidact, self-taught. Things that attract me is theatricality. And then I like a lot of, for want of a better word, soundtrack music and sound designs and movies and things. So a lot of what I make music for is accompanying a play, accompanying a drama, accompanying a radio drama or that enhances a mood. I suppose another influential thing, like people were big into the Beatles. When I grew up, the Beatles were the big group. They were still on the go, releasing new stuff. Near the end of their career, they came out with the double white album. John was hanging out with Yoko Ono on the side four of the album for like 20 minutes is this whole thing called Revolution Number no. 9. Number no. 9 number nine number nine with all these sound clips and voices and people commenting and sound effects of rugby matches and uh, all kind of weird stuff and piano and stuff all done as tape loops that was the technology then tape loops playing at the same time mixed in and out of the foreground and stuff to produce this psychedelic drug trip experience Normal Beatles fans hated this because they just thought this is John Lennon masturbating in public for 20 minutes, which is only so exciting. But for other people like me, it was actually, this is the most interesting thing that John Lennon has ever done. <laughs> and, and again, would listen to it over and over again. You know, I have friends that say, oh, we want to do like an acapella version of it. We want to get like four performers to do Revolution Number no. 9, 20 minutes of it with making the sound effects with their mouths. I don't know how big of a, of a market it would have, but it's... Uh, it's great. That's the power of sound, more than pictures. It bypasses your, your optic nerve, your cognitive reasoning, whatever area of your brain, right past those lobes and gets right down into the primal apes in the trees kind of brain and just it has a powerful, huge impact on you, the sounds. So that kind of led to a, a lifetime fascination with the power of sounds and what they can do and get to those regions where a normally articulate person is struggling for words. Many of my dearest brothers have been martyred, and I swear that when the day of battle arrives, with my own sword, I shall avenge their deaths ten times over. When that great day comes, Marshal Rico, may I be at your side. You wish to be among the Templars in battle? I do. You've had training? Yes. Very well, let us see. Here. Take this dagger. Go on. Go on. Marshal, I... Now, go on. Philip. Lunge at me. Don't. Come now. All right. Drop the blade, Philip. Drop it. No. Never. No. I like your spirit. And that goes back to stuff I've learned since about the Mercury players. Unlike other companies which said, oh, here's a Shakespeare play, let's put it on the radio. How do we do that? Oh, we get a bunch of actors, they stand around a microphone and they read with feeling Shakespeare's script. Great, now we have a radio play. And the Mercury Theatre said, no, that's really not using the medium for what it does. What about music? What about sound effects? Oh, well, that's not in the Shakespeare script. Yeah, but we're on radio. It's a medium. It, it, it can do things. It's like saying, oh, you can paint a painting, but only use the color green. You can use all these other colors. They crafted their scripts from the beginning, putting in sound effects, putting in music, and that was an integral 
necessary component of how it was conceived. So when I r did stuff for sound, it, it was precisely that. And all the time, by the way, I'm thinking this is a visual medium. Sound is a visual medium. It's If it's effective, it's putting vivid pictures in your head. Sometimes the pictures are so much more powerful than words. The real use of sound puts the pictures in your head. So if you write something and you really want to get atmospheric, then from the word go, you're thinking, how do we create these pictures in the listener's head? And that means using music, using sound effects, using different sound treatments on the voices, silences. You build it in as an integral factor of it, and it makes a, a huge world of difference. So much radio drama and sound stuff to me is just perfunctory. You actually have radio producers, I know for a fact, I won't mention any names, so you're going to go, oh no, this has so, a lot of sound effects in it. If we put in sound effects in and try to make them happen, we'll be here all day. <laughs> so they cut them out and it's just people talking. When you get plays like we're sitting around in a living room and what do we do? We talk. And because it's about the word, they think. It's all about the word. I respect the word. I'm a playwright. But I think the pendulum has swung too far over with a lot of drama, too much respect for the word, too much thinking that it's about the actor delivering flowery prose with some kind of emotion, supposedly. And that's what conveys the meaning, when really we know, scientifically, it's only a small percentage of meaning that comes from the actual words. The meaning comes from the visuals that people are taking in as they're watching the person talk, and also from the tones of the words. We can get a lot of meaning of somebody speaking Japanese. We don't understand a word of Japanese, but we could watch a Japanese conversation and analyze that's an encounter of affection. They're quite annoyed. They're getting impatient. They want them to finish talking because they want to get a word in edgewise. We can read all that without understanding the words because what's actually communicating to us is emotion and stuff. Same, same thing with audio sounds. Music can put in a whole scene and how much can you do without words? That's, that's an interesting place to go to. How much of a story can you tell without words? One of the things that changed my life was encountering Roland Kirk's album, The Inflated Tear. I've dedicated a show to him in the past. I have everything he recorded during his life. He's a fascinating figure. Later in his life, he had a dream and decided that he needed to change his name, and he became Rassan Roland Kirk, but he's still Roland Kirk. 
look for him in your jazz department. He was blind black American jazz musician. He wrote music as well. But because I think he was blind, it tapped him into the world of sound a lot more than other people. And one of the things he uses on one of his albums is this thing called a flexitone, which was used as a silly sound in a lot of American vaudeville. And it's a metal strip on a little metal frame and it has these little beater sticks that tap on the metal and as you torque the metal bend the metal these little wooden beaters makes this sound Hi friends, Ralph Sportsport, Ralph Sportsport models, the world's largest dealer sipping new used and newly used cars here in the city of Emphysema. Let's just look at the extras on this fabulous car. Wild wheels, spoke fenders, two base knees, two wind vents, starts and mud guards, sponge coat with bolt-on steering column, foam fender vents, and factory air conditioning air. It's a beautiful car, friends, with doors that match. Purchase blacklist says this automobile was stolen, but for you, friends, a complete price. Just two hundred five hundred dollars you know. That's the way he talks. They go inside the car. He turns on the radio. The radio's got its own little thing going on. For a few seconds, it's in the foreground. Then it's put into the background. Then, oh, look, the car. From about 1969 to 74, the Firestone Theater were on the go, and they were quite popular. They were on Columbia Records. You could find their albums in any record store in America. So they, that was kind of a way into kind of more wackier, surreal stuff. They turn on the television. They watch the TV. There's a movie on. They comment on the movie. And then that goes in the background. It doesn't go away. And then they say, oh, it's got shortwave radio. So they start listening to some radio from South America, which is in Spanish. And they comment on that for a moment. They leave it on. So after a while, there's like all these gadgets and things on all at the same time, producing this kind of cacophonic din. In the foreground is the two guys talking. And eventually your, your man buys the car. For affectionados like me, it was a point of honor among other fellow audio nerds to have listened to this album so many times that you could actually know what was going on in all these different layers. Unlike a radio drum which goes out, you listen to it once and there it is and it's gone. This was on vinyl disc, which meant that you could listen to it over and over and over and over again. So it had all these layers purposefully put in there for a person like me to enjoy. Firesign Theater stayed in sound. They did stage shows touring around to colleges and theaters in the States, hampered by the fact that one of them has never stepped foot on an airplane, so that limited their touring, and they never got onto television, whereas Monty Python started on television, and then they did the albums, and a lot more people know them because television beats radio. The visual medium reaches more people in today's world. So, People that would have been Firesign Theater fans became Monty Python fans by the kind of mid-70s because public television in the States began to start showing the Monty Python show on, on television. And then, and then the record companies were changing and they weren't so experimental anymore. And the kind of radicalism and edginess and countercultural thrust of the 60s was dissipating by 1972. You had country rock, which was political and countercultural from Creedence Clearwater Revival, replaced by the kind of mellow Californian, let's do some cocaine country rock of the Eagles. And you had the edgy rock trying to say something about the world, replaced by the blando rock of Fleetwood Mac, safe for Caucasians to listen to in their suburban homes.
Night Start by Paddy Bush. Sleep easy, love. The day will come around. And light the glass and warm the windowsill. it for this special bonus episode of Mad Scientists of Music it only remains to say that you can find more of Roger's work on YouTube just search for Crazy Dog Audio Theatre and on his Be Loud Cabaret WordPress page and the Be Loud Cabaret continue to perform regularly in Dublin and on RT Radio 1's Arena Culture Programme Many of Roger's programmes have also been serialised after their broadcast dates on the excellent Radio Drama Revival podcast. That's radiodramarevival.com. And you can find all of the other episodes of this series on my own website, garrettstack.com, where you'll also find my own humble efforts at Radio Drama. There's a few series up there, plus plenty of podcasts, documentaries and other audio bits and bobs. Here's a parting performance from the incomparable Roger Gregg. This one is pitched pentatonically. In other words, it's all to a little fixed scale of five notes. All these notes work with one another, which means there's no wrong note. Anybody with two thumbs or fingers can work this thing and get a kind of nice evocative thing. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men. Headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless. As wind and dry grass or rats' feet over broken glass in our dried cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed forth. Gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but only as the hollow men. And that was a little tribute to Roger Gregg, and I appreciate the shout-out there, Gareth, for Radio Drum Revival. Uh, we'll be featuring some of Gareth's work next week, and Roger's stuff is at Crazy Dog Audio Theater, theaterre.com. Um, and a lot of people have, in fact, found that the Radio Drum Revival archives are a fantastic place. And, uh, yeah, until next time, hundreds of hours of programming at radiodramarevival.com. You can find us now on SoundCloud, as well as iTunes and Stitcher. Anywhere, just look for Radio Drama Revival. And, of course, Facebook, facebook.com for slash Radio Drama Revival. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Drama. Uh, send in submissions to the Radio Drama Revival page. Uh, send in donations also at RadioDramaRevival.com um, or send me your feedback, Fred at Radio Drama 
RadioRumorRevival.com. Uh, that's a wrap for this week. Radio Room Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains that are original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Our submissions editors are Matthew and Monique Boudreau of Oral Stage Studios. Copyright of each show remains their original producer, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival is a production of Radio Drama Revival LLC and is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. If you like free stuff, you're going to like Tim's Rewards by Tim Hortons. You can earn free food or drinks after every seven purchases. Cool. How do I win? Um, it's not a contest. You just use your Tim's Rewards card. And after seven purchases, you score a free coffee, tea, or baked good. Whoa. So I've got a pretty good chance of winning. Well, actually, you've got a 100% chance of winning. Those are great odds. <laughs> they sure are. Free coffee and more with Tim's Rewards. It's Tim Hortons' way of saying thanks. Valid only at participating restaurants. Please visit restaurant or timhortons.com slash rewards for full program details. Get to Old Navy, one day only, Saturday. Summer's hottest dresses are on sale, just 10 bucks for women, 8 bucks for girls. Plus, save even more when you redeem your super cash through Sunday at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Hurry in, valid 6-8, select styles only.